As the founders of the Spectrum video game developer Ultimate Play the Game, Chris and Tim Stamper demonstrated their tendency to always be on the cutting edge of technology. So when they finally saw the Nintendo Famicom, they knew it was time to start focusing there. With that in mind, they founded Rare, and they started a relationship with Nintendo that would last for over a decade and produce tons of games for both the NES and its successor, the Super Nintendo. When it came time for Nintendo to replace the Super Nintendo, Rare was up and ready to do it and made a number of investments that positioned them as one of the key developers for the upcoming Nintendo 64. One of these investments paved the way for one of the best-selling Super Nintendo games of all time, Donkey Kong Country. Today, we're going to learn all about the history of Rare and the development of Donkey Kong Country. So stick around as we go bananas on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and or good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 117th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we will tell you the story about one game, console, person, or topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, well, we just hope to teach you something. Something new about it, the topic, something new about what it took from the world as its inspiration, something new about what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Just want to teach you something. This week, we are looking back at Donkey Kong Country, released for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System on November 18th, 1994. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who secretly told me and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to share it, but what the hell, it's done is done. He secretly told me that he has a crush on Candy Kong. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, Candy Kong, huh? I mean, it's more just the name than anything else. Candy? Candy's pretty awesome. Yeah, we're fat, so Candy works. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder how many guys, like, childhood crushes were video game characters. Uh, Very many. I, I guarantee it. Well, nowadays, probably so, because of the internet and, like, Rule 34 and all that jazz, but, like... Whatever. Me- rule 34? You don't know Rule 34? I'm not a heathen. You know what Rule 34 <laughs> is. Good lord. Uh, You know, yeah, okay, so nowadays, because it's so easy to find everything sexualized on the internet... But, like, growing up, I uh, I don't know. That's like saying that I had a crush on Princess Peach. I did not have a crush on Princess Peach. These were just pixelated characters, you know? Yeah. Oh, Lara yeah. Croft. Lara Croft with her pointy, pointy bra. I knew there was one. Mm. I know. I'm just thinking of, like, the early ones. I didn't have one, but no, I'm just I saying. that for a second. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. So today, Donkey... Well, no, actually, well, today, Donkey Kong Contract still has a damn question. Uh, you familiar with the game? I am familiar with the game, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Well, before we get to its story, uh, which is also the story of its company, Rare, what have you been playing? Well, Dave, <clears throat> this week has seen a little bit of RuneScape, a little bit of Rocket League, 
a uh, little bit of Forza, a little bit of Phasmophobia. Jeez Louise. A little bit of... Um, uh, what's the other game? What else did we play? Yeah, what else did we play? Did we play Diablo this week? I don't think um, we played Diablo this week. I don't think we played Diablo this week either. Did you play Tarkov this week? No, I think that's it, actually. Cool. Yeah, I don't know. How about yourself, Dave? What have you been playing this week? Rocket League and Warzone. And I don't think there's been anything else. Mm. I can't I can't recall any other games that's been popping between those two. So. Still sounds like quite the fun time. I mean, they're fun. I mean, if the games weren't fun, I wouldn't be playing them. So, Very true. You know, you know. Well, today we are going to learn about the history of Rare, which is the company that created Donkey Kong Country as part of, well, I mean, the history of Donkey Kong. And it all started back in the 80s or so. 70s 80s maybe way back when well a university chris stamper started by building his own computers his early kit computer had an 8-bit processor and he taught himself how to program by writing traffic light signaling software there's really no other reason for me to tell you that he built his kit computer i just really like the reason the fact that he built traffic light signaling software with a computer yeah it reminds me a lot of like all of us hobbyists nowadays that play around with like the arduinos which is essentially the same kind of stuff where we just use it for random things you know yeah, that's very fair i'll give you that um so i'm really amused you know chris was really always into electronics he played around with them as a kid he at one point as a child he built an oscilloscope which is quite an achievement as far as i'm concerned did you ever have to build your own oscilloscopes I did not have to build one, no. No, but you got to play with them. Correct, I did. Nice. He went away to school, to university, to earn a degree in electronics and physics, but left pretty early on in his uh, collegiate career to pursue a job in computer programming. He found himself a job working on arcade machines. He would fix bugs in the machines, and at one point, his first company working here he was part of a team that converted space invader cabinets over to galaxian so he was familiar with arcade ports and he ended up working for he and his brother tim ended up both collectively working for a company called xylec electronics which basically did just this they performed they performed arcade conversions as part of their job at xylec they traveled they traveled to japan as part of their work and um, this helped them become familiar with the Japanese game industry, which would which would be very important later on. And we'll get back to that. In 1982, uh, Chris and Tim Stamper started a company called Ashby Computers and Graphics, along with two other people. Um, they designed video games out of a four-room house that they had rented. It was immediately next door to their family's corner shop, so it wasn't a place they were familiar of familiar with rather initially with a little bit of whistle in there the company 
which was known publicly as Ultimate Play the Game, licensed arcade cabinet conversion kits to other companies. But it was obvious that the home computer market was on the up and up. This was the mid-80s after all, and so they decided to start focusing on that. And to start with, they started developing games for the ZX Spectrum. Now, Ultimate Play the Game's first release was Jetpack. Jetpack was a shooter video game released in May of 1983. And let's just say it did okay. Um, It won Game of the Year at the Golden Joystick Awards in 1983. It may have sold over 300,000 copies. May have earned the company a million pounds. Oh, and it may have also helped earn uh, Ultimate the title of best software house of 1983 at same golden joystick awards so yeah small feat just nothing special yeah, hey no, look just just tiny bit so it's the time of year i was actually i literally just saw a tweet not too long ago for the golden joystick awards for 2022 what do you think got best game of the year for golden joystick 2022 modern warfare 2 no Damn. maybe but no it, it takes two no, I don't even think that was a 2022 game, but that was a phenomenal game. If you've never played it, it takes two. You should go play it. No, uh, no, no, no. Think of something that you enjoyed this year. Uh, Targo? A, a big game that came out this year. A very big game that came out this year that we both played and enjoyed the shit out of. RuneScape? <laughs> yeah. That definitely... Are we talking Diablo? No. No, we're talking Elden Ring. Oh, so ah, yeah, and uh, and was, I, was that the, well, February okay. came out my birthday. You, All right, you, uh, it also won from software they that from software won best software house of the year uh, because nice. of Elden Ring. So, so yeah, brought the, brought that around to the now. Now Jetpack is um, you can find it on some modern compilations, um, Ultimate. Its library would eventually get roped into Rare. And there's a Rare replay compilation that can be found on. Ultimate released a few other games that year. There was a game called Psst, which I really like. A game called Trans Am, but trans with a Z. Can't be copyright infringing. A game called Cookie. And a game called Lunar Jetman, which was a sequel to Jetpack. And they were, they all did okay. In 1984, Ultimate released a game called Saber Wolf, uh, which sold 350,000 copies. Now, Saber Wolf is an action-adventure game in which you have to navigate, well, the Saber Wolf, he's a a character, through a 2D jungle maze. Um, Behind it, they released two sequels, a game called Underworld and a game called Night Lore. Now, Night Lore was an incredibly influential game for its time. It was developed on an engine, an art engine called Filmation, and it was an action-adventure game presented in a 3D isometric view. Now, 3D isometric basically took off after that point. Um, It was something new that people had seen, and they liked it, and then people started cloning the heck out of it. So there are a lot of games in the late, mid to late 80s that are in 3D isometric views because of Night Lore. In fact, modern games 
that use an itromestic view, including Rob Dablo, which you just which you just brought up. Um, the designers of these games often cite night lore as one of their influences in choosing choosing that viewpoint. So night lore night lore is really popular. Um, it didn't end up coming out till November of eighty four, and despite this, it was voted game of the year at the Golden Joystick Awards of nineteen eighty four. Nice. And Ultimate won back-to-back Software House, Best Software House of the Year awards in 1984 as well. So, because of all their success, the Samper Brothers ended up selling Ultimate Play the Game to a company called U.S. Gold. Now, U.S. Gold was a British software publisher that mostly imported games from the United States and sold them in Europe kind of cheaper so people would buy them. At this point, they would have imported games such as Beachhead, Raid Over Moscow, Impossible, Impossible Mission, Summer Games. But as they grew, they imported a lot of titles that we know. Um, There were titles that they've imported on their library that we've covered previously. They imported Another World to Europe, Duke Nukem 3D to Europe. And there are also popular games that we've never covered, such as Bionic Commando. And they brought Street Fighter to Europe too. So the truth is, is that Ultimate as a software development house was doing great. And the offer that US Gold brought to them was really hard to ignore. And it really would have been stupid for the Stampers to not jump at the chance, you know, the financial windfall that would have came by selling off to US Gold. But the one thing that I want to bring up at this point is if you've listened to this podcast, if you're a long time listener to this podcast, we've heard this before again and again and again, there are so many developers and publishing houses that once they sell out to one of the big guys, things just don't go very well. You know, um, that's just been a, a recurring theme, but the stampers were kind of smart and they were a step ahead of this. You see, Shortly before the U.S. Gold takeover, the name of another company, Rare Limited, began appearing in the credits of all their releases. Rare was, in fact, a company set up by the Stampers to develop for Ultimate, but not be a part of any company takeover. It did, however, have a slightly different focus. Now, the Stampers used their connections from previously working in the Japanese gaming market, like we had talked about, to import a Nintendo Famicom. And they believed it to be the ideal future platform of choice. As they saw it, the Famicom was more sophisticated than the Spectrums. It had a worldwide market uh, because the Famicom, uh, they knew it was going to North America as in the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System. And its cartridges had no load times. Um... So once they established Rare in 1985, the initial goal of Rare was actually to reverse engineer the Famicom to learn more about the console's programming. So when they sold Ultimate Play the Game as a company, they were really only selling off future development on the ZX Spectrum and not their whole future in game design, which is really smart if you think about it. Is it, Dave? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Mm, Didn't work out for him. (laughs) Boy, didn't it? Now, 
it's important really to know at the time that Nintendo claimed, as Nintendo does, that it was impossible to reverse engineer the Famicom. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but this team managed to figure it out. They prepared some tech demos, which the Stampers took to Japan, and they presented to Minoru Arakawa, who, again, listeners of this podcast know, the founder of Nintendo of America. Now, Arakawa was very impressed with what they came up with, and Nintendo offered the team virtually an unlimited budget to work on games for the Famicom. And this was really where Rare started as a company. Now, with a pretty vast development budget, they moved into a new office. They spread across the world, founding also Rare Incorporated in Miami to manage U.S. operations. As a result of this partnership, Rare actually became Nintendo's first major Western developer. And it started with their first game, Slalom, which was a downhill skiing game released for the NES in 1986. During the NES era, they worked on over 60 games for the NES and Game Boy, and it was a mix between license and original software. Their licensed games included WWF WrestleMania, Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Beetlejuice, The Amazing Spider-Man. They they got their hands on a bunch of licensed franchises. But their, their original software, at least to me, is even more impressive. Uh, they brought they made Cobra Triangle, one of my freaking favorite NES games. Uh, they made a game called RC Pro AM, Snake Rattle and Roll, and one that everybody knows. They invented Battletoads, the hardest game ever known to man. I don't know if it's ever now, but back in the day, yeah, I definitely agree. <laughs> I'm sure it's been surpassed at this point. I don't know. It's always still up on that list. In 1990, Nintendo released the SNES, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. One thing that Ultimate was always good good at was being at the cutting edge of technology. You know, their filmation engine that they developed Night Loran with the isometric view was really cutting edge. And realistically, everything they did was considered cutting edge. They just had a knack at programming and could use every bit of what they needed out of those spectrums and it allowed them to make great games. And frankly, that was what allowed them to be successful. So it really should come as no surprise that as the stampers and rare transitioned over into game development on the home console front, that the stampers are really looking to find themselves on the cutting edge of technology again. So in 1991, they decided to stop, making game after game after game. They basically pulled back their game development so they could have money to invest in new technology. And what they ended up with were Silicon Graphic Workstations. Now, Silicon Graphic Workstations, the SGIs, uh, were the supercomputers of the time. And really some of the only commercially available computers that could run Alias software, it's called, which was basically what was the 3D rendering of its time. Not that it's really relevant to today's story, but to kind of bring this into light for people who are kind of familiar with modern stuff, Alias software, Alias as a company would be, they're the ones who developed Maya, and Maya is pretty much the golden standard for 3D animation software 
nowadays. It, it's Autodesk. It was bought by Autodesk, but Maya's kind of that that thing. So even here back in the day, that same company was was the golden standard of 3D rendering software. But their but your average home computer could not run this stuff in any way, shape, or form. It can only be done by supercomputers, and that's what Silicon Graphic was known for. This was a huge investment, just to be clear. Every workstation that they bought cost them 80,000 pounds. Wow. And that's in 1991, you know? Wow. But, but, but it did make them the most technologically advanced UK developer. I mean, was that just a title because they spent the most? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But they did have it in. Um, Rare had made this decision because Nintendo was also in discussions with Silicon Graphics. Nintendo was working with SGI to develop the, the GPU, the graphics card that would be used in Nintendo 64, which they did. In case you didn't know, the GPUs that are in the N64s are actually SGI cards, so are X, SGI chips. So when the partnership with Nintendo and Silicon Graphics was announced in August of 93, it really came as no surprise that seven months later in March of 94, Nintendo announced that Rare would be one of the first developers to support the Nintendo 64. Now again, just to put this timeline in, we're in 93, 94. The NES came out in 1990, so we're three or four years into that, and it would be another 96 was the Nintendo 64. So we're right in the middle of the the that generation, and we're still three years away from an N64. But they're getting their ducks in a row. They're starting to create it, starting to get with the the hardware guys to to put all the pieces together. And you know, Rare had an end and happened to jump on top of it. In order to learn how to use the Silicon Graphic workstations to develop games for the Nintendo 64 they started working on a boxing title that was tentatively called Brute Force. Coincidentally, as part of this experimentation, they figured out that they could use these SGI workstations and the process to create 3D graphics for the Super Nintendo. It's important to know that at this time, Nintendo was smack dab in the middle of a console war with Sega. And the executives at Nintendo were looking for a game to compete with Sega's Aladdin, a very popular game which featured graphics drawn by Disney animators. Now, one of the chairman of Nintendo of America at the time was Howard Lincoln. Howard Lincoln had caught wind of Rare and heard about Brute Force, and he asked for a demonstration. So the Stampers packed up their stuff, came, brought it to Nintendo, and Nintendo walked away impressed. As part of this successful meeting, Tim suggested developing a platform game that used pre-rendered graphics created by, by their process. Now, he was inspired by Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat was 94, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in there. And Mortal Kombat use digitized footage instead of hand-drawn art and this is the concept he had stuck on his head and, and you know they use digitized footage we'll create this art with our 3d workstations and then we'll put that into a game to have a completely different art style than anyone has ever seen in response to this idea nintendo granted the stampers permission to use donkey kong 
as an intellectual property. You see, there hadn't been a Donkey Kong game since 1983, and in their mind, allowing them to work on a franchise that had had no releases in the previous 10 years posed relatively little risk to Nintendo. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And so... They began work on a new game in the Donkey Kong franchise. It was codenamed Project Country. Uh, it was given that name by Nintendo because the little village that housed Rare's office, Twycross, Twi probably had... God, in 2011, I went and tried uh, population. I looked it up. The last one I could find was 2011, and in 2011, it only had 850 people. So in the mid-90s, probably half that, you know? Fun little fact... The Twycross, I want to say Twycross because it sounds like I'm making fun of it. The Twycross Zoo is known as the World Primate Center. It houses the largest collection of monkeys and apes in the Western world, and the team did in fact visit the zoo for inspiration with their monkey models while developing the game. They didn't really use the monkey models. They said that the uh, the movements of of real um, of the real monkeys and everything was really just not fun, not feasible, so they didn't use it. But it's fun to think that they lived next to the monkey zoo. So, also, I had no clue that somewhere in the middle of Europe is the largest collection of monkey and apes in the Western world. No clue, you know. Yeah, I couldn't have told you that either. So, Rare brings together a team, a dozen developers. It's the largest team in Rare's history at that point, and they all start development on Donkey Kong Country. Now, not everyone at Nintendo was particularly thrilled with this project. Upon viewing an early demo, Gunpei Yokoi, famously known as the creator of Game Boy, who we've covered in previous episodes, said that it looked too 3D. And others at Nintendo were really concerned that this new graphics process would really make the game unplayable in the end. Thankfully, thankfully though... The team found the approval of the creator of Donkey Kong himself, Shigeru Miyamoto. Now, it's important to know that this is the first Donkey Kong game that Miyamoto neither directed nor produced. He was busy working on Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island, but in various interviews it is noted that he was still involved with the project and he was more than happy to give them input when he was asked to do so. So, you know, Miyamoto has a, 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 a reputation for being a great guy. In this case, Miyamoto was perfectly Miyamoto. Also, despite Nintendo's notoriety for being incredibly controlling of all of their intellectual properties, they really let Rare do their own thing on this one. Well, that's shocking. I know, right? Uh... And Rare, I mean, that's, they kind of, as far as I'm concerned, knocked it out of the park. You know, they turned to Super Mario Brothers 3 for level design and wanted to make levels that really just flowed together. They designed the levels with post-it notes. Each piece of a level, like a vine or a barrel, was given its own post-it note. And they just kind of stuck them together in a row to put the levels together. Speaking of the barrels... Pretty obviously, I mean, I don't think it needs to be said, but it has been brought up in interviews. They're an homage to the original Donkey Kong game. Donkey Kong himself uh, was originally a little more realistic, blocky and muscular. His eyes were brought over from the Battletoads art design. 
However, Nintendo wasn't very fond of this look, and after some suggestions by them, he was made to look a bit more cartoonish as we have him now. And his partner in the game Diddy Kong was invented while the team was looking to create a game mechanic similar to Mario's power-up system. Um, they thought that a second character could perform this function, a second character would look visually impressive, and a second player would give the player a feeling that they weren't on this journey alone. All things that are true. Now, originally, Diddy Kong was conceived as a remake of Donkey Kong Jr. However, they didn't want him to share the same like build, the muscular build of Donkey Kong, so they modeled him after a spider monkey instead of a gorilla, and they made him more agile to set him apart. Which kind of makes sense in hindsight. Yeah, no, it do- it kind of does when you think about it. Nintendo, though, they weren't really a fan of this redesign because D- Donkey Kong Jr. was pretty well established. So they asked the team at Rare to either rework the character or present him as a new character. So instead of Donkey Kong Jr., we got Diddy Kong instead. Fun little side note here. The team actually wanted to call him Dinky Kong. But Nintendo's legal team advised against it, so they settled for Diddy Kong. Um, yeah, I okay. don't know. Yeah, I don't know why Dinky Kong is offensive. Maybe I mean I can I, I can gather why, but you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't have thought of it. It, it sounds pretty innocent to me, but I guess I could see it. Yeah. Uh, all in all, it took the team eighteen months to develop the game. Twenty people total were working on it by the end. Rare dumped a million dollars into the project something absolutely unheard of at the time and as part of all the marketing and stuff they did leading up to it, a lot of interviews they bragged about it being developed with the most man hours ever invested into a video game at the time which back then was 22 man hours 22 years 22 years of effort when you added up all the man hours they put into building this game Wow. Isn't it kind of weird, though, to think that that has probably been ridiculously dwarfed? You you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it is. It, it is when you think about it. But I mean, for the time. Yeah, for the time was a lot. Well, okay. So let's put that into context the way they did and probably everything. That probably includes all the time it took to render these 3D models. Because there are interviews where they're like, hey, look, there are some times that we would have to, like, set a model to render and go home and we come back the next morning and it was like a percent done or some stupid stuff like that. So, um, I mean, we're talking 3d rendering with the absolute beginning of the technology. It took a long time for these workstations to do their thing. Right. You know, so when they Nintendo first unveiled donkey Kong country at the consumer electronics show in 1994, they purposely didn't reveal that Donkey Kong Country was a Super Nintendo game. Instead, they wanted the audience to believe that it was being developed for the N64. And so they waited until the very end to announce that it was actually a Super Nintendo game. And as the story from attendees goes, the audience was momentarily stunned into silence before erupting into applause. So fun, fun little, fun little anecdote there. They tricked everyone. Ha ha! Ha ha, got us. Got them. But did they really? Yeah, they did. Legitimately, look, there was no Super Nintendo game that looked like this. It, it They could have announced it was for the N64, and no one would have been any surprised, because it looked 
I mean, realistically, it did look like something that was out of a next generation graphics, you know, graphics generation, because there wasn't anything else in the Super Nintendo that was that was 3D to the extent that this was 3D. Nothing looked like it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of people were surprised. It was it was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing. Now, in hindsight, we don't care because we know what it is. But back then it was a it was a it was a downright coup. Downright coup. Coo-hoo, All right, that's how we got there. That's how we got there. Now, if you don't know Donkey Kong Country, it's a side-scrolling 3D platform game. It's a reboot of the Donkey Kong franchise from the 80s. And the story begins with King R. Rule and his army of crocodiles, the Kremlings, steal the Kong's banana horde. I'm sorry, King what? King R. R- King K. Rule. There you go. King K rule. You said our rule, but it's know. King like cruel. Yeah, King, King King cruel, and the Kremlings. They reused the Kremlings from another game. Um, I oh. forgot. I forgot what game. It was a game that they started to make and then they couldn't finish it, and the Kremlings just came over from it. And I can't remember what it is right now. Huh. That's a pretty cool factoid. So yeah, so the bananas get stolen. Donkey Kong and his nephew Diddy Kong set out to reclaim the horde, defeat the Kremlings. Now, this is not this is not the Donkey Kong from the original series. This is um, not that Donkey Kong. Right in the beginning of the game, you meet an old monkey called Cranky Kong, and it is implied and pretty much confirmed in the instruction manual that Cranky Kong is the Donkey Kong from the original series. So this is a young, younger, I don't know, maybe his grandson. I don't know if that's ever really made clear. Huh. That's pretty interesting too. But yeah, that's um that's that's pretty much it. You have Donkey Kong and Diddy Kong and when Donkey Kong gets hit, um you play as Diddy Kong and then when Diddy Kong is gone, um Diddy Kong is gone, which we'll call it. Okay, so the so I said before, because I don't know if it's really obvious, I said before that they invented Diddy Kong as a because they wanted to make a system that was similar to Mario's power up system, right? Right. So if you think about it, Donkey Kong and Diddy Kong are essentially like putting a mushroom on, except you're not putting a mushroom. When you eat a mushroom in Mario and you get hit, you just shrink and you get to keep playing. So when Donkey Kong gets hit, he quote unquote dies, and then Diddy Kong keeps playing. So it's the same concept of getting a free hit, just done as a second character, which I think is which personally I think is very cool. No, I agree. I, I think it is also the cool. It is an ingenious way to implement the same mechanic and to do it so drastically different. I think it's great. That's it. That's Donkey Kong Country for now. I played a lot of Donkey Kong Country. I really enjoyed it. I remember being so excited to play it all the time. I can still remember the music in my head and it was awesome. It was fast, pretty unforgiving, but it was so freaking cool. So many levels. I think there's 40, so many weird things to collect, not as varied as Mario, like Mario Mario World was really cool to me because you had to like backtrack and find hidden paths and stuff like that. And there's really not too much of that in Donkey Kong Country. You can ride animals and the rhino can bust into hidden walls 
to find hidden areas, but there's just not a lot of that, not a lot of that variety. Like in Mario, you can go up, down, left, right, all the way around, and all the levels in Duck Kong pretty much scroll from left to right for the most part. And so it wasn't as much searching to get all the hidden collectibles, but I still, um, I still had a really great time with it. I, I, this one, this one hits a little nostalgic sweet spot for me because I was a big Donkey Kong Country fan. Did you play it at home or did you get experience to it or or introduced to it later? It was, I started playing this one on our, our super Nintendo. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is good. Did you ever beat it? Do you can remember? (laughs) Not at all. No, I did not play this one enough to beat it. I, I was awful at this game. Um, I mean, it was fun to play, but yeah, it was, it was at a time when I wasn't really good at side scrollers. I mean, even now I'm like Mario and this, I am terrible at these old side scrollers. Um, yeah, no, I, I played games in the three third dimension very well with two dimensional. I just, I don't know. I'm crap. They made games harder back then. I'll give them that. Yeah, I do. I I think this donkey Kong. I, I like Donkey Kong country. I think it's, I think it's special. Um, I, I think they knocked it out of the park. Well, that's what I think, Rob. This is about the time when we see what other people think. So am I the only one who's in love with Donkey Kong Country? Uh, I would say that's a hard no, Dave. <laughs> yeah, it's a true statement. As we know, some of these older games have a little bit of difficulty getting to the... Uh, the critic reviews. Yeah. So, yeah. Who cares? We're, we're going to, we're going to skip right on out. I'm sure the critics love the game. Some of them hated the game. You know how critics are. They get paid to write for games. It is what it is. So we're going to go right on to our user reviews, kicking it off with none other than Darth Sith, the 19 who wrote on Moby games that Donkey Kong country is terrific and a masterpiece. He goes on to write that this game had the best graphics for a Super Nintendo game ever. Seriously. Super Mario World times 10. Plus, the music was as good, if not better, than Super Mario World. Seriously. And it's extremely funny too. And there are lots of enemies. You have to use strategy and decide whether to use Donkey Kong or Diddy Kong, because for some parts of some levels, you have to use Diddy because he jumps higher further. And seriously, the swimming levels are so much better than Super Mario World, and everyone wants to ride a swordfish, rhino, or ostrich. And swinging on the ropes, the rain, everything looks so realistic. You almost forget you're playing a Super Nintendo, and think you're playing a 64. And the level with the mining cart? Come on. Everyone like that level. And the snow is so realistic looking. Darth Sith finishes off by saying, if you don't have... <clears throat> Excuse me. Darth Sith finished off the review by saying that if you don't have it, I have two words for you. Get it. Get it, get it. Yep, 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 yep. So, obviously, Darth Sith felt very, very strongly towards it. And our next user for Moby Games, Guy Chapman, feels similar, writing that Donkey Kong Country is a classic platformer found within pretty graphics. 
He writes that it's impossible to describe Donkey Kong Country without mentioning the graphics. It's the biggest selling point of the game. Even by today's standards, it's a very pretty game. And it's not hard to forget how mind-numbingly awesome it looked back in the day. From the multi-layered graphics with weather effects to the full character animations, it was the type of game that you took out to impress your friends. But at the heart of it all was the gameplay. This was a good Nintendo platformer, even though this was Rare's baby. The worlds were huge with multiple paths and plenty of secret areas to exploit and discover. The game also had a fun sense of humor, ranging from Cranky Kong to the little in-jokes found throughout the levels. From a rare standpoint, this was also one of their best titles as the gameplay remained strong, not devolving into a series of fetch quests that plagued even their best titles on the Nintendo 64. As good as Donkey Kong Country is, though, it's simply not a Mario game. The statement isn't meant as the end-all that only Mario games are some of the best platformers around, but with all of its perks, the game just lacked those subtle nuances that Mario titles had. Finding things wasn't quite as accidental. You had to be a pretty bad player not to find a large collection of secret areas in Donkey Kong Country. Finding animals to ride with was fun, but it didn't have that offensive oomph Mario titles did. A player didn't necessarily feel like the tables were suddenly turned in their favor, as it was more of a new way to get around. All in all, when it was released in the early 90s, Donkey Kong Country was a real stunner. It was a beautiful game for its time, and in many regards, it still is. And even without the exploitive depth of the Mario titles, the game does not leave a player wanting for things to see and do. If you've never played it, then you owe it to yourself to give this game a try, especially since Nintendo has made it so readily available. If anything, just to see one of the biggest games to change the face and perception of what the Super Nintendo was cap- capable of. That is absolutely true. That is the one thing it did, probably more than anything, is, is it changed... It it did. It changed everyone's perception. Uh, suddenly, we realized that the Super Nintendo was capable of way, way more than the little hand-drawn. I mean, we just said that, but I, I can't stress that enough. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. So I mean, sometimes you just gotta put everything to the test and see what it can really do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Dave, as we know, there's always a different opinion. And ours today comes from user Magfram from Moby Games, who says that there are good things about Donkey Kong Country, including a satisfying platformer in many respects, engaging level design with lots of hidden shortcuts and tricks to keep you interested. Not a lot of variety, but succeeds in that it finds the fun things, like riding animals and minecarts, and hits you with it enough to keep you happy, but not so much as to trivialize things. Second is good music that attempts to move away from the three-tone ditty or faux rock of most other games. For them, the most memorable part of the game. Number three, the overall design that that distinguishes the game from others. In the platforming genre, that's doing something. And with that being said, there's 
plenty bad to be noted about the game, including that this game was popular in its time because of the graphics, and those graphics haven't aged well. They now look a little chunky and a little too ambitious. They don't think it would have held up as well as the clean lines of Super Mario World, the tricked out Super Mario Bros. 2 and Super Mario Bros. 3 of Super Mario All-Stars, or the minimalist sci-fi of Metroid or Super Contra, all of which seem to be a more timeless design. I'm not comparing Donkey Kong Country's graphics to those of current games. Looking at those graphics in the context of those at the time, and I think the design of Donkey Kong Country comes off as a little gimmicky. Next, looking at the graphics is this way allows us to do something many other games didn't do when Donkey Kong Country was released. Divorce our opinion of the gameplay from our opinion of the graphics. I think doing this allows us to look back on the game and realize that while it's a good platformer, it's not as fantastically great in terms of gameplay as many people made it out to be when it was released. A few notes on the gameplay. Riding animals is fun, but is it that fun? For instance, it doesn't take a lot of skill to hop on the rhino and move right. And I think because most animal riding doesn't engage any game skill, the novelty of it, hey, I'm riding a crazy rhino, Woohoo! Wears off pretty quickly. Not many things to do with your characters in terms of movement. While it's a testament to quality level design, which manages to make playing the game interesting despite the limited moves, it's still something. The play control to me always felt slightly off. Let's pick on the Rhino again. Whenever I was on that guy, jumping around felt non-responsive. Like there was some kind of variable, minuscule lag between when I hit the button and when the rhino jumped. The same goes for the timing on DK's roll and leap. I learned that the key to nailing it was to be a little too patient and wait past the moment you feel like you should be jumping to nail it. I'm sure the control on DK's roll and leap is by design, but I just didn't care for it. Would have liked for it, and the rest of the control to be a little lighter. Mag also feels the game is easy. Never really challenging at all. Part of the reason is the amazing amount of lives you can rack up without really trying. Yeah, you get tons of lives in other platformers, but normally you have to go out of your way to get those additional lives. In Donkey Kong Country, the lives rack up as a consequence of simply playing the game. It makes the game too forgiving. Please don't make this a hater comment, but I don't care for the character design and resent that it's being taken on by the Mario Karting universe. Diddy Kong to me is solely appealing to the cute monkey perception and lacks a lot of the imagination put into many of the Mario characters. I don't know, chimp in a baseball cap isn't exactly what I'd call exciting. But the cute factor caught on, and now... Diddy's befouling the Mario Kart series. <laughs> Donkey Kong Jr. and Super Mario Kart wasn't so bad, but the rare design Kongs to me just don't do it as far as character design goes. The bottom line is that I wrote this review for the reasons the title suggests. I wanted to give it a counterpoint to the notions upon the game's release and the notion held to this day by some nostalgic Donkey Kong Country fanatics that the game 
coming near the end of the Super Nintendo life cycle, was by default the pinnacle of Super Nintendo platformers. It's easy to realize you're being unfairly nostalgic when you're looking back on an Atari 2600 game that clearly benefited from cool cover art. It's harder to recognize nostalgia when it's a game that's only 10 years old or so. I don't think that it takes much of the serious playthrough of Donkey Kong Country to see that it just doesn't have the ageless qualities of other great platformers. Where I identify many other great older games with their gameplay, I can't help identifying Donkey Kong Country with those chunky graphics that were such a big deal at the time. That, to me, suggests that Donkey Kong Country isn't maybe all it was cracked up to be at the time in terms of gaming goodness. See, I don't agree with that necessarily. Um, I do agree with the art style dating itself a little bit. I think that um, the 3D, whenever you use 3D models and stuff like that, if you don't update the resolutions as the technology updates, they're going to start to look chunky and big and not crisp and things like that. And that is what's happened to Donkey Kong Country. Whereas most games that are pixel art that are clean lines like Mario Kart and so on and so forth or Mario rather it that stuff that stuff I think expands and, and I think it's cleaner in the future. Also, everyone's updated those games, if that makes sense. Um, so I do kind of agree that it's dated. I don't think it was a bad game, though. Even I mean, I I just don't think it was a bad game. I think it was a great game for its time. It was definitely a technological marvel for its time. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on that? I definitely found this game to be difficult. I haven't tried playing it in recent years, and knowing that it's easily accessible on Nintendo, I'm going to go ahead and take another crack at it. I do know that I spent a lot of time playing this game, and I did enjoy the hell out of it. Um I mean, obviously, it helps to be able to look back at a game like that, having grown up with it with rose-colored glasses, but it's going to be the same with any game. You know, graphics today are definitely not comparable to what they were back in the early 90s. Game controls have gotten better, but I still think that for the time, it was an incredible game. Growing up with it, I loved it, and if even though it may not live up to today's standards, I think that it's one of those games you have to give a try and see how you feel because uh it's it was a fun one i'm glad to have gotten to play it and i mean to be fair i uh diddy kong is one of my fa- uh, better smash characters so nice. a little biased in that regard oh i definitely don't like that guy's take about not liking the fact that diddy kong brought cute monkeys over to mario kart dude fuck off <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean who knows some people but, you know, they did at least say that uh, a good platformer that's worth playing. So, yeah. Yes, it is. It. It was liked when it was released. It set the record for fastest selling video game at the time. It sold 500,000 copies in the first week worldwide and 1 million in the U.S. alone within two weeks. It came out a few weeks before Black Friday and during its first holiday season in its entirety, it sold 6 million copies worldwide. All in all, it sold 9.3 million copies. It's the third best-selling SNES game 
of all time and the best-selling Donkey Kong game in the entire Donkey Kong franchise. So I'd say that it was pretty much a, a smashing success. Um, Nintendo recognized this, definitely, and it made them want Rare. So immediately they purchased a 25% stake in the company and they slowly ramped that up to a 49% stake uh, and as a the majority minority holder, they made Rare a second party developer for Nintendo. Um, and honestly, from there, Rare's library just kind of gets ridiculous. They, of course, continued with the Donkey Kong Country franchise. They made a Donkey Kong 2 and 3. They hit gold, no pun intended, with GoldenEye 007 in 1997. We covered that game back in episode 52, if you'd like to learn about it. As part of that episode, we learned all about the team that put together GoldenEye and worked at Rare was just a massive pedigree of talent. We learned all about that team that worked at GoldenEye. So go back to episode 52 and check it out. They also went on to create other titles for Nintendo, such as Perfect Dark, Conquer's Bad Fur Day, and Star Fox Adventures. Ooh... Love me a Star Fox game. Hell yeah, they're great. <laughs> in 2002, uh, Microsoft bought Rare. Everyone thought Nintendo was going to, but Nintendo didn't put an offer in, and everyone was super confused. But Microsoft bought Rare, and Rare became one of Microsoft's first party developers. For Microsoft, they've developed Perfect Dark Zero, Cameo, Elements of Power, those were both early 360 games. Viva Pinata, I love Viva Pinata. Connect Sports, and right now they're putting all their time and effort into Sea of Thieves, which is a pretty popular MMO uh, on the Microsoft network. They're also currently working on a new action-adventure IP called Everwild that we really don't know too much about, which probably has a 2024 release by all accounts. And the Stamper Brothers themselves, they stayed with Rare through the Microsoft acquisition. Uh, they ended up leaving the company about 2007. They were pretty much unheard of for the next decade. That kind of changed just a teensy bit in 2017 when they collectively invested in Fortune Fish, which was a mobile game company founded by Tim Stamper's son. And that's about it for the Stampers. They, they haven't done, done much since this at all. Um, you know, the Donkey Kong legacy itself never really stopped. There are Donkey Kong countries, there's Donkey Kong racing, there was Donkey Kong 64. And then for the Wii, or was it for the Switch? I can't remember which. Donkey Kong Country Returns, they brought back the Donkey Kong Country series and they just put one out, what, a year ago, two years ago? It's like a, a frozen tundra. It's one in a cold climate, I think. I'm not familiar. I'm not sure, honestly. I did yeah. not know about that one. Yeah, so Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong is, is it, it, it's still with us. I mean, it's still. Rob said it's just one of his favorite Smash characters is Diddy, so it's definitely still alive in the Smash franchise. Definitely still alive in the Mario Kart franchise, and they're still making Donkey Kong Country games. So Donkey Kong hasn't gone anywhere. Man, I love the story of Donkey Kong. We did a whole episode on it. I don't remember when. If you ever get a chance, it's I, I don't know why. It's one of my favorite stories. Just 
the thought of having to rescue a company from the brink of bankruptcy and randomly inventing this character that basically turns the company around. And if you listen to the episode, my argument is that Donkey Kong pretty much gave Nintendo the income it needed to make this NES. So we have Donkey Kong to thank for saving the video game industry. Um, but I'm a big Donkey Kong fan. You should go listen to our Donkey Kong episode. Yeah, go listen. I can't remember what episode it is, but Rob, you know where people can find out where that episode is? Uh, I would have to guess that it's www.memorycardlane.com, Dave. That is correct, Rob. Why Why would they go to memorycardlane.com? Well, obviously to do what you just asked about, so there's that. Uh, which would happen to be looking at old episodes, uh, as well as finding the calendar to see what future episodes may hold. And also you can find the little diddlies about Dave and I, uh, uh, get to know us a little bit. And uh, there's links to all of our socials and and to our Patreon. Uh, And, uh, you know, I can be found on my socials on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z and Dave. I am found on various platforms as David is wrong. Indeed. Indeed he is. Is there anything else at the website, David? I may have forgotten to mention. No, you covered everything I care. Oh, link to our Discord, right? Oh, yes, yes. A link to our Discord where you can share funny memes with us and hang out and play games with us and, you know, just an all-around chill time. That's very so true. do the thing. Do the thing. Go to www.memorycardlane.com. Well... Every week, we tell you a story about something relevant to the current week of gaming history. This week, we learn all about the history of Rare as a company and its way to develop Donkey Kong Country, which came out, um, what, 94? Wow, that's a long time ago. I don't even want to talk about that. Came out a long time ago this week. Um, Every week, we pick a new topic and we teach you things. And really the best thing about that is that we learn new things every week. And so an acknowledgement of us learning alongside with you, uh, we like to talk about our biggest takeaways. So Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I think that uh, my first, well, my second favorite little tidbit. Well, Dave, I think that my second favorite little tidbit is the fact that they kind of trolled the whole crowd with this one, uh, being that they, they made it seem like it was going to be for the 64, and then it was like, aha, joke's on you, it's the Super Nintendo, ah! I just, I think that's silly and fun. It's it's exciting, you know, it's not like we get that very often now. Um, but above that, I think that I, I, I really wish that the name had been Dinky Kong, <laughs> that that is just incredible dinky kong yeah i think they need to actually make another tinier one and call it dinky kong yeah but that's it for me how about yourself you know in hindsight e- even if you like nintendo is is very much when rare became a company to north america right when they started developing for the nes so i feel like if you weren't british 
you really wouldn't have known. Well, Rare didn't even exist back then. So I guess my point is learning about Ultimate Play the Game before they were Rare and all the accolades that came that came to that company was something completely new to me. I, I'd never really heard of Jetpack or Saber Wolf or any of the Ultimate Library. Didn't know they were Game of the Year winners. Didn't know that they, it was such a popular software house. That was all just a big a big black hole of knowledge that is now not so big black or a hole. Um, and yeah, that was pretty cool. So always a win. Yeah, absolutely. It is definitely interesting to know all that as well. All right, Rob. Well, I'm going to take it out of here. But before I do, is there anything you would like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do just want to take a quick moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. It warms our hearts to hear all the stories you have to tell us about our show or just seeing those numbers rise on the number of listens. So we hope you're enjoying. And if you're not, tell us about it. Or just buzz off. Whatever you prefer. But thank you to those of you who listen. Back to you, Dave. On to next week. Rob. Yeah? It's not the first real-time strategy game. But it is the game that set the foundation for pretty much every modern real-time strategy game for, I mean, until now, the next 30 years. Okay. Released in December of 1992, Dune 2, The Building of a Dynasty invented many of the key elements that uh are part of the real-time strategy genre that we we love today we, honestly we're we're big rts fans so are we uh, yes yes we are we maybe don't play them as much as we used to but i definitely think that we're rts fans so next week we're going to learn all about those elements we'll learn where they came from and we'll learn what they inspired as we, visit, as we visit the planet Arrakis on yet another trip down memory card lane to the thing. Dooby-doo-dap-dap-dap-doo-da.